Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever taken a personality test? I mean, sure, sometimes we do it for fun. But these days, more and more employers are actually using these tests on their employees. This is a multi-billion dollar industry and growing. So are these being used in your workplace and why? Why would your boss want to do this? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Tomas Chamara Pramuzic, who's a psychologist and author of I, Human. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Why have these personality tests become so popular? Look, fundamentally, employers have realized that if they go on looking for talent in the same old places and they continue to focus too much, even obsess over hard skills, academic credentials, and the qualifications that people bring from university, they're going to miss out on a really important part, which is people's soft skills. And personality assessments are the best proven scientific way to understand whether somebody has empathy, curiosity, learning ability, and all the things employers really want to know about employees. So is this something that they're asking potential employees to do, like in the hiring process? Yeah, this is a great question. So there are two uses. One is potential employees, so work um, you know, seekers, job applicants, to understand them, particularly if they don't have much data on them besides what they report on LinkedIn or the resume. You want to get a holistic look at the full human that is coming to you know, work for you potentially. And the other one is for internal development. Personality assessments can give people feedback on their potential, their performance, which often managers refuse to do, sometimes because they're polite and conflict-averse, and sometimes because they don't really understand the intricacies that actually make up the individuals that work for them. Hmm. Do you think these are useful? Of course. Well, you know, I'm somewhat biased because I spent 25 years researching them, creating them, using them, (laughs) and I see the advantages, but I think the reality is that if you're interested in understanding the person, beyond what they have done in the past and beyond the formal qualifications that they report and you want to actually know what makes an individual tick and how they differ from others in a world that is supposed to embrace diversity and inclusion and bring people from different walks of life to the workplace, they are a very good data-driven and pretty reliable objective resource. But are they a good predictive indicator on somebody who might develop leadership qualities or somebody who might surprise you? Yeah, this is actually the most underutilized, um, I would say, application of personality assessments. Look, we have uh, studies going back 20 years showing that if you assess somebody's personality, you can predict 50% of the variability in their performance as a leader. Now, 50% might not sound like a lot, but imagine the remaining 50% is composed of things like subject matter expertise, past experience, Uh, you know, their networks, whether, you know, they fit an historical profile of somebody who is successful. And of course, we also have bias there because a lot of times people in management or leadership roles 
are uh, assigned positive ratings when in fact they're not doing a very good job. So as a device or tool to understand whether somebody who has never managed or led before has the qualities that we need in leaders for them to be effective and turn a group of individuals into a high-performing team, they're a really, really valuable resource. And again, they're a good way to understand if people have empathy, if they have integrity, if they have curiosity, imagination, learning ability, and if they lack some of the qualities, problem qualities, that we don't want leaders to have, things like narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Right, because some of that... If you do it like face-to-face, you won't necessarily detect it, right? Individually, as people, we, we, might fall, we, we might fall prey to somebody's, those kinds of personality quirks, whereas if we use the test, do we not? This is exactly the main problem. When we look at people and we interact with them, say, on a job interview, and you're the interviewer, you think you can judge them? Yeah. You think that social skills are a sign of empathy or emotional intelligence? But there's a lot of studies, including our own research, showing that people who come across as likable and charismatic on an interview are often actually narcissistic and manipulative. And just like you wouldn't marry somebody after a first date, you know, you shouldn't hire somebody because they're <laughs> likable or charming in an interview. I mean, you'll pay the price five, six months later, and sometimes forever, if you then can't get rid of this person. Okay, and what about using them when you're already on your current employees? I understand that in the United States, this is becoming a popular way to develop work-from-home strategies. Yes, that's right. I mean, Canada as well, big companies in general have understood that these assessments are very useful if you want to develop people because you can only develop new skills uh, or new, you know, important work-related attributes if somebody tells you where your gaps are, if somebody tells you what your kind of opportunities are to get better. And again, if you take these assessments and they tell you, look, you should be working on your communication skills or you're not a very good listener or, you know, take into account other people's perspective, etc., you have an opportunity to get better. And what we have found in the last two years with hybrid working and more people working remotely is like their opportunities to casually engage in these development conversations with managers have been reduced because everything is a Zoom meeting or a Teams right. meeting and we jump right away into the agenda, etc. So we have lost these opportunities for small talk and the humane interaction that we used to have with bosses or managers. And so taking an assessment can actually give you the feedback you need to get better and also understand in what direction you might want to develop your career, because this can tell you, you know, what your potential kind of um, developmental trajectories are. Should you be a manager? Should you be a leader? Should you become a creative individual, um, you know, technical individual contributor and so on? Isn't there a concern, though, here, Doctor, that as well you could become pigeonholed by what the personality test said about you? Well, you know, if you don't interpret the results correctly, then yes, of course. I mean, this is never deterministic. It's never, you know, uh, all or nothing kind of feedback or prediction. We're dealing with probabilities. But in essence, what the assessment and the feedback tells you is people who answer like you tend to do this, they tend to like these things, they tend to operate well in these environments, and they tend to not do so well in those environments. More often than not, that is true. We find that if you have a technical expert, whether it's a coach or an HR professional that knows how to interpret these assessments, they will add color and uh, depth to the interpretation and the accuracy also increases. But fundamentally, look, 
is no different from having your GP, your doctor telling you, hey, you know, you have a predisposition to uh, eat too much sugar or to not control, you know, your sedentary habits, etc. It doesn't mean that that's definitive. Yeah. But paying attention to this feedback is often what you need to change new habits. Ultimately, this is about building new, more effective habits that make you happier and better at work. Is it a bit more of an equalizer too? Because if you're not just relying on personal impressions, then maybe you're looking at candidates that you wouldn't have looked at before. Absolutely. Look, I think in general, we still have a tendency to focus too much on style and too little on substance, you know, even, and this is very timely because, I mean, you know, we just celebrated International Women's Day again, and we still keep on pointing the finger at women for not self-promoting, for not leaning in, for not speaking in meetings when they have nothing to say. In fact, what we should be looking at is what people actually contribute and what they could contribute. And, you know, an important thing to consider is that this isn't about looking for people who are all the same, but actually building teams that are well-balanced, where you have somebody who might be very good at execution and have attention to details, somebody who might be very creative, somebody who might be a good communicator, an influencer, and so on. So ultimately, this can help not just individuals land better jobs, but organizations form better teams and have teams that are more diverse, which then you need to ensure that you manage in an inclusive way. But even that, selecting leaders that have a propensity to be open-minded and manage in an inclusive way can also be done with good personality assessment. Well, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Mornings with Simi. You know that... Chinese-Canadian parliamentarians and Chinese-Canadians in general are targets, greater targets for interference by China uh, than others. And we get updated regularly. All right, that's Prime Minister Trudeau. And, you know, the controversy over foreign interference in our elections continues to rage, despite what, you know, the government keeps saying, and despite the measures that were announced by Prime Minister Trudeau this week. The problem is the stories keep coming. The stories of how people in charge were told about these concerns and did nothing. In fact, there are those who say they tried to warn the government for years about the influence of the Chinese Communist Party in Canada, and they were ignored. One of those people joins us now, actually. Gloria Fung is with us, president of the Canada-Hong Kong Link and the convener of the Canadian Coalition for a Foreign Influence Registry. Gloria, thank you for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me this morning. Now, Gloria, in years past, is this something that you have raised concerns about? Yes, absolutely. Actually, for decades, we've been observing the continuous infiltration 
of uh, Canada by the Chinese Communist Party. Of course, there are also other Manai uh, foreign powers doing the same. And we have written a national report on intimidation and harassment, and we have submitted that to the government as well as our CMP. Uh, but unfortunately, we haven't seen any action being taken. And then in recent months, with the exposure of more details, uh, you know, as indicated in the alleged uh, CSIS reports and also media coverage, I think uh, we are already up to a point that uh, we need our government to take immediate action to combat foreign interference. And that is why we, uh, 33 community organizations, have come together with one voice to urge our government to pass and enact the foreign influence registry before the next election takes place. Right. What have what kind of things have you seen? Like what worried you? When, what kind of things did you see that were worrying you, Gloria? Well, I think uh, the infiltration, manipulation, and intimidation have been taking place for years uh, at different levels of government in different provinces of Canada. Um, Say, for instance, apart from the so-called, uh, you know, the, the, the funding being channeled from uh, the Chinese embassy or uh, Chinese government to their preferred uh, candidates, we have also seen a lot of violation of the regulations of uh, Elections Canada um, at different levels of uh, government elections. And uh, to such an extent that uh, they gradually build up their, you know, their, their, their power base at, you know, different levels of government. And uh, so uh, at the same time, they have also systematically uh, intimidating and also harassing dissidents uh, who are critical to us the Chinese policies on Canadian soil. And they have also jeopardized our peaceful demonstration, our Canadians' rise of freedom of expression as we exercise it on uh, uh, in Canada. And uh, so this is really beyond our, you know, uh, endurance. And uh, it is of utmost importance for our government not to deny uh, these infiltration um and then uh, they need to take immediate action to combat the foreign interference. Particularly, the foreign in, uh, influence registry mm-hmm. is a very important first step. Um, well, but of course, we can still continue to investigate into the root cause and the operation right. of the entire problem. Clara, when, when these reports were given to the RCMP or when they were given to the government, what kind of reaction did you get back? Did you ever hear anything back? Well, uh, the, the the national report of intimidation and harassment that I mentioned just now uh, was dated 2017 and 2020. And uh, in both cases, we submitted it to uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And then uh, we also met with LCMP uh, representative uh, to directly address our concerns to them. But unfortunately, uh, we haven't seen any action being taken until very recently when the police service stations uh, issue and also the election infiltration issue have been brought up by media. But still, uh, based on my conversation with LCMP, I observed that 
you know, they don't have the necessary legislative tool to enable them to hold individuals or groups uh, that are involved in this kind of handling accountable. Uh, Are you hopeful, though, Gloria, with everything that's happened in the last couple of weeks, do you feel like maybe finally something will happen? Well, I'm hopeful that the uh, our government has finally admitted that they need to, uh, you know, uh, uh, probably uh, pass a, a foreign influence registry. Uh, however, um, time is of essence. They need to pass and enact it as soon as possible without further delay. And it should be totally independent of these, uh, the investigation to be conducted by the special rapporteur. Because we need this act to be in place before the next federal election. And uh, so I'm hopeful that uh, our government has finally taken the first step. But this is only a baby step. So we look forward to working with the government to make it happen. Well, Gloria, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. That is Gloria Fung, president of the Canada-Hong Kong Link and the convener of the Canadian Coalition for a Foreign Influence Registry. She is one of many people who have been warning the federal government and security services for years about the influence of the CCP on particularly, you know, candidates for elections, foreign influence in elections, essentially, and says that nothing, you know, ever, nothing was ever done about it. So that warning has been there. And hopefully now the government will start to listen. I mean, they made that announcement this week, but I don't know, there's not a lot of confidence that something will actually change as a result of that. This is Mornings with Simi. Revenues have gone up, expenses have gone up, margins have not gone up, they've been stable for a long time, and food margins have actually declined. So those are facts. All right, that's Eric Laflesh, who's the president and CEO of Metro, a large grocery store chain back east. The message, essentially, it's not true. That's kind of what we heard from the country's biggest grocery store chains when it comes to allegations that they are profiteering off of our economic circumstances and off of rising inflation. So several of them were called to speak before the Standing Committee on Agriculture and Agri-Food in Ottawa. We wanted to hear an explanation as to why prices have skyrocketed at twice the rate of inflation and their profits have also gone up. So who was appearing there? Well, the CEO of Empire Foods, they own Sobeys, Freshco, Foodland, other chains, uh, Galen Weston, CEO of Loblaws. Uh, there was like the three biggest chains in Canada, essentially. So what happened? Joining us now to talk about that is Alistair McGregor, who's the NDP critic for agriculture and food price inflation. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Glad to be here with you. What did you, what was your impression of what you heard from yesterday? Well, uh, you know, I I was glad to see the CEOs finally appear before our committee. I believe that, uh, you know, leadership um, begs that they do appear and publicly defend their companies. Um, It was much the same as what we had heard from their vice president. And, you know, I, I, I was listening into their explanations at committee I think the problem here is that, you know, we as parliamentarians and the public don't have access to how their profits are broken down. Like, so we can see with their publicly available data that, yes, the profits have gone up, the margins have gone up. In fact, they've they've doubled since the last pre-pandemic year. Uh, The CEOs uh, did explain that that was due to other departments, but 
we can't make that conclusion ourselves. That's all of their private data. And I think, you know, there's still very much a crisis of confidence and a crisis of trust uh, in their industry. And I think some of the frustration you saw at committee, not only at that meeting from parliamentarians, but at previous meetings, uh, is reflecting what we are hearing from our constituents every single day when they have to walk into the supermarket and are buying food prices that just seem to be climbing ever higher every time they go in. So, but there seems to be some kind of disconnect there. Then if we think one thing and they're telling us another, that's not going to solve our problem, is it? That's exactly it. And, you know, uh, we, we, you know, it's important to note, too, that this study hasn't just focused on the grocery CEOs. We are tackling the problem of food price inflation, but we've had other witnesses appear who have tried to give us a more well-rounded picture, including economists who are experts in the sector, but also from the Competition Bureau. And I think there's a real frustration from many sectors with the grocery uh, sector. Um, We heard it from food processors who have had to deal with hidden fees and fines. Uh, We've heard it from the Competition Bureau, who is still in the midst of their investigation of Loblaws, for the bread price fixing scheme uh, that is alleged to have happened back in 2015. So there's a lot of frustration and still a a lack of trust, but also there's a gap in information. And I think that's kind of where we're getting to in the course of this investigation. Okay, but will we ever actually get answers from them? I mean, if they don't believe the two are connected, do they at least, did you get the impression that they at least understand why the public is angry? I think so. I mean, Mr. Weston uh, made a point of of saying that, you know, he often goes into his own grocery stores and speaks to customers. Um, We're speaking to the same customers as well. And, and, uh, you know, my my leader, Jagmeet Singh, he took my place at committee yesterday. Uh, He appeared at the committee with over 2,000 written questions from people who had taken the time to talk about this issue with the leader. And, you know, we had so much interest um, in the leader appearing at this committee that our website temporarily crashed with the number of people who were trying to submit questions. So this is obviously an issue which uh, many people care deeply about. And and I think that's why it's important that we get to the end, end of this investigation, that our committee tables a report, and that that report contains substantive recommendations on what the path forward should be. But let's be clear about this, though. The report can come and there, you know, there could be some revelations in there, but that's not actually going to save people money, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately, we're going to require it's going to require a change in policy and it's going to require, you know, the government responding to those recommendations. We're, we're a parliamentary committee. We, we don't have the ability to put those policies into action. But, you know, once that report is public, uh, it can be used as a catalyst, as a focal point to demand more change. And I should note, too, that, you know, it's not just parliamentarians raising these concerns with corporations who are using this general inflationary period to pad their profits. Um, The Bank of Canada has raised similar concerns. And in the news last week, I also read that the European Central Bank is also quite concerned that many corporate sectors are using this inflationary period to drive prices up uh, above and beyond what many would consider reasonable. So I think there is a very broad amount of concern out there that this is happening across many different sectors, including the grocery sector. Okay, so what are the next steps here? Next steps, uh, we as a committee have decided that we we certainly do need a a few additional meetings to to, to hear from witnesses. 
Uh, we are getting a lot of really great testimony, and I think that's going to aid us in the drafting of our report, which I expect will probably start in April. Uh, so that's the next steps for, for our committee in the near term. All right. I look forward to hearing more. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for your interest. Appreciate it. That's Alistair McGregor, who's the NDP critic for Agriculture and Food Price Inflation. They are the committee that he's on that committee that has been calling these grocery store executives to explain why their profits have gone up by much like, you know, by this what inflation is going up here. Uh, At the same time, we've doubled what we have to pay in some cases when it comes to the rate of inflation. And yet they're also making good money. So how is that possible? What is going on there? Clearly a disagreement on how they view their numbers. Maybe they're underestimating how angry the Canadian public is about this. But I know this is a huge concern for all of us out there. How are you dealing with it? What have you changed in your grocery store buying habits? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You've heard of the empty homes tax. It was first brought in by Vancouver City Council. It's an attempt to cut down on the number of empty homes and encourage people to rent them out instead or do something with them. Well, another municipality would like to try something similar, not to deal with empty homes, but instead empty storefronts. This was something that kind of Vancouver floated this idea about a year or so ago, but now New Westminster would like to try it. Joining us now is Daniel Fontaine, New Westminster City Councillor. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. So how big of a problem, Daniel, would you say empty storefronts are in New Westminster? Well, in New Westminster, it is a fairly significant problem, and it is particularly acute on Columbia, right in the downtown core. If you have not driven by there lately, um, over the past uh, number of years, you're just seeing a a lot of uh, retail storefronts, which are just simply boarded up with plywood. I I drove by one yesterday, which um, has been empty for, I believe, a, a few decades, and uh, just in the last week, it got boarded up. It's It's got plywood and no doubt there's going to be graffiti on there before you know it. So it is a serious problem in a, you know, our, the oldest city in British Columbia, the oldest downtown uh, in, in the province of British Columbia. And it's, it's something that needs to be addressed. Okay. And how do you think this should be addressed? What's New Westminster Council talking about? Well, what we're talking about is actually something, first of all, that is supported by the local business community. And I think it's important because typically when you hear about tax, it's not something that people really want or, or in particular for, for the for the business folks. But what we're looking to do is to implement a effectively a, an empty storefront tax. So if you leave your storefront for a, a lengthy period of time unused and simply uh, using it as an investment and not opening it up for retail within our city, you may be like um, a residential vacant property tax. You'll be facing some fairly stiff uh, taxation as a result. And that is being used as a stick to encourage those retailers and those owners to either redevelop those properties, uh, bring in retail so there's activity on that storefront, and not leave block after block boarded up and, and unused. And, and we've heard loud and clear from the existing retailers that are there that there are a number of retailers that this has to be addressed with because they're they're not helping the street and they're not encouraging other people to come down and shop. So that's something that the city of New West is now asking the province to assist us with because we don't have the legislative um, ability at the moment to impose that tax unless the province gives us the green light. Okay, would you say then that councils, if they did have the ability to do it, they would do this? Absolutely. This was actually, um, uh, you know, we've had some votes, many votes in the past few months that have not been unanimous at our city council, uh, but this was one that did pass unanimously. So it has 
bipartisan support uh, amongst everyone on council. And like I said, we had a delegation come in from the local chamber of commerce. They came to speak when the motion came before council. They gave it a wholehearted endorsement and said, please go ahead, ask the province to do this because we're right now in the, in the city of New Westminster, just developing a new retail strategy. We just, uh, had our first workshop, public workshop on that uh, a week ago, and we're trying to revitalize our downtown and other business districts throughout the city of New Westminster so that they're, they're um, you know, kind of uh, vibrant, they're active places, because we know that when that's the case, um, crime goes down, uh, we know that there's economic activity goes up, and that's all stuff that council supports. So I have no doubt if the province were to give us that that ability, we would move forward very quickly and and implement that type of a bylaw. What do you consider, though, to be a reasonable amount of time for a storefront to be empty? Well, that has to be worked on, and those details are yet to be determined. But I can tell you, just from having lived in New Westminster for over a couple decades now, I can point out literally a dozen or so uh, fairly significant pieces of property which are empty. Um, either the the building burnt down years ago and it's just been let sit empty on the on Columbia, or for example, buildings that have been there for for decades and have been literally boarded up or, or not uh, rented out. And to me, that excessive period of time, we're talking like literally years or decades, I, I don't think there's anyone in the city of New Westminster who thinks that that's a good thing to have um, sitting uh, within our city. So the, the actual time frame has yet to be determined, but I, I, I don't think we're talking weeks or months, Simi. I think we're talking more like years in terms of, right. of things sitting empty. Because yeah. I think a lot of probably developers would argue that, oh, hey, you know, in some cases it's, I'm not saying this about New West, but I'm saying in general, they would say, oh, it's City Hall. That's the holdup. Mm-hmm. Not in these cases. Uh, I, and I don't think anyone would make that assertion when you're, uh, you know, your, your storefront's been empty for 30 years. I would be hard pressed to see how any, anyone could point a finger at City Hall on that. And that's why I think the time frame is important, that it is uh, a time frame that's, that's lengthy enough that clearly indicates there's something more there than simply uh, perhaps bureaucratic uh, issues at City Hall or perhaps uh, uh, an issue with kind of uh, repairing the building to get it prepared for the next tenant. We're talking, you know, years, Simi, and I think it's time for us to, to take some action. And we're certainly hoping the province of British Columbia will support our initiative. Right. And so why do you think businesses are on board with this? And I know that, that was a problem when the Vancouver proposal a year ago is that many businesses were like, well, no, we don't like this idea. Well, because I think in New Westminster, we're a small city. Uh, most retailers know each other. I was just at the, the business improvement area um, annual general meeting last night. It's like a family affair. Everyone knows each other. And and the businesses know that the, the longer these retail uh, outlets stay vacant and these, these lots, which used to be uh, utilized years ago until a, a fire and things burnt down, the longer they stay empty, the, the longer it will take to revitalize Columbia Street and other business districts within the city. So they know that it's absolutely vital and important that we don't have very large chunks of our business districts that are boarded up and that are unused because that ends up uh, attracting crime uh, and ends up, uh, you know, having people feel unsafe on the streets. And we know that um, that's something that they're not interested in. And I know that council isn't either. So that's why we have that endorsement from the business community. Okay. So you said you have to ask the province for permission on this. Where is that at? So at the moment it is headed over now to the province for consideration. Um, I'm assuming that it would literally be the stroke of a pen, but one never knows with uh, legislation at the province because there already is 
a template and a model. We know that for residential uh, properties. So we're hoping that uh, the province can act fairly quickly on this and uh, perhaps uh, bring in some type of legislation as early as this fall. But we'll, we'll have to see where that goes with our negotiations with the province. All right, we'll see. Daniel, thank you. Thanks so much. That's Daniel Fontaine, New Westminster City Councillor, talking about their proposal, a unanimous one at City Council there, for an empty storefront tax. They have to ask the province for permission to implement this. Uh, They're working on that now. But is this something that you need in your community? Do you think, we know this happens, right? And I'm sure you've seen it where you live too, that maybe a block is waiting to be redeveloped and it just sits there empty, boarded up for a long time. And you always think, well, couldn't they open it up? Like, couldn't they rent it to somebody who wants to be in there for six months or a year or something like that? Should they be forced to do so? This is Mornings with Simi. If you've got a loved one, a family member who has been hospitalized under the Mental Health Act, do you think that you should be told? seems like a simple question, right? But it's one with a very complicated answer. And up until now, the answer has been, I mean, regardless of how you feel, you do not get that information. But a new bill proposed by opposition BC Liberal MLA, Eleanor Sturko, proposes to change that. And we'll talk about why that is now. She joins us now for more. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Cindy. Thanks for having me. Now, first off, tell us about the bill. So this bill, which is a Mental Health Act amendment, 2023, um, if passed, so it aims to help prevent suicide deaths by requiring doctors or nurse practitioners to seek further information on a personal psychological history when they're considering whether to involuntarily admit and treat someone under the Mental Health Act. So it actually only um, would affect Section 28, which um, is the emergency part of our um, Mental Health Act. So if your loved one or family member is apprehended um, because they are believed to be a risk to themselves or to others and brought to um, a hospital for evaluation, it provides, well, actually the requirement um, would be a requirement for a physician or nurse practitioner to seek more information either from uh, a close family member or the complainant, or for example, they could receive that information from uh, police or from people who would um, maybe they were apprehended from, let's say, a treatment facility so they could talk to people with information about what's been happening with that individual at that treatment facility. So uh, I know a lot of people had some questions about the Privacy Act, um, but this isn't uh, looking to provide a a lot of information about an individual. It's actually uh, giving our um, evaluators at the hospital, the, the dedicated doctors and nurses, a tool so that they can have a full, fuller picture on someone that they may have, uh, frankly, just met a few minutes before having to make this really critical decision. Right. And you, you've got a very personal reason, I know, for bringing this forward. Why is that? Well, for me, actually, the inspiration for this started about 14 years ago. Um, in 2009, I attended the scene of a young man's suicide um, in Langley as a police officer. And that individual... Um, this is a bill that would have actually helped to bridge the gap that affected him and and when he took his life. And so um, it's been on my mind uh, in the beginning when I was dealing with the aftermath of that tragedy. Um, It was um, really difficult. And I often felt a sense of frustration and and anger with the doctors who were assessing and and then had allowed this individual to to go and, and what subsequently happened. But over time and processing and, you know, you realize that doctors and nurses are doing a wonderful job, of course, but they can only work with 
the legislation and the tools that they have available to them. And so I've been thinking about this a lot and about what kind of a a tool would allow them to get more information. It doesn't mean necessarily, it doesn't guarantee um, that someone will be certified. There's still criteria that has to be met for certification under the Mental Health Act, but giving those doctors and nurses a, a tool more information that they can can get uh, to create the sort of full circumstance of a person's um, situation, and then and also, I've heard over the you know more than a decade now, decade and a half, um, from people not only who've lost loved ones but have had near misses or who themselves were um, you know subject of the mental health act that you know they would have appreciated having a family to have input so this also gives families an opportunity to participate in the care of the ones that they love um, and we're talking about an emergency so this only pertains to the emergency part of the mental health act and it's when someone is in a very severe crisis and they need the help the most right it's really tough to balance that though isn't it that that privacy issue, uh, the, the family dynamics issue, all of that, because we don't know, every person's situation is different. Yeah, and there's a lot of things, you know, people have been asking, so what happens if they, someone is in an abusive relationship? Or, you know, what are the kind of pitfalls? Have I thought this through? And, right. and of course, you know, there's a lot to be considered. And of course, when we debate bills, um, should the government call this for debate? There's lots of things that we can discuss, especially in the... Um, when we go to committee. But, you know, I think that these are types of things that can be um, information that can be, you know, obtained, first of all, because police are involved in these situations, these circumstances, these apprehensions. And so a lot of that information may already be known, of course, when the person is coming, some of their circumstance. And I think that doctors and nurse practitioners deal with this type of obstacle on a regular basis, um, looking at circumstances and determining best course of action. So it says reasonable steps. So, of course, um, we want there to be it's not just carte blanche to suddenly start calling um, anyone. It is like to right. be done in a measured basis and to, to make sure that we're doing it within the spirit of what this legislation is. And that's to to get the best outcome for a person who's in crisis. What kind of a difference do you think that could make? Oh, I think it would be a game changer, honestly. And and I'm not just, you know, trying to be um, dramatic. I, I really do. I mean, in my own policing career, um, and I, since Announcing my my bill, I've received just dozens of emails to my constituency office from people who've been affected um, by suicide, self-harm, lost loved ones, particularly parents of of adults who they were not able to uh, assist with their care. And I think that in British Columbia, looking at the state of mental health, looking at the state of our addictions crisis, um, we really need to create a situation where we look at what would be in a, the best interest of people who are suffering. And, you know, family members want to participate. They want to help their loved ones. Um, and so we need to try to look for ways that we can work together with families um, to really meet the needs of people who are in some very dire circumstances at times so that we can get good outcomes. And I think, when we look traditionally at when people have success, for example, in recovering from mental health, and I know in my case for sure, it was the love and support of not only family, but friends mm-hmm. and a network of people supporting me. So we need to start looking at ways that we can help 
with these networks of people who would be there and like to intervene and to provide support and information to get good outcomes for their loved one. Usually with a private member's bill, you're talking about fighting an uphill battle, but this one seems to be a little bit different. It's it's generated some some good buzz, even from you know the government, Premier David Eby saying this has a merit. So are, are you hopeful this is going to get moved along? I am hopeful. And, you know, before, you know, I didn't want to drop a bomb on the government, to be honest, um, because this is important. And so I did reach out to Minister Whiteside before um, the introduction of this bill. So the day prior, we had a conversation and it wasn't the first time I've had a conversation with her because I think, you know, people see us in question period and we are often exchanging barbs. But the reality is, is that we all want to help British Columbians, uh, both her and I being involved in the mental health and recoveries and addiction portfolio is, um, you know, we really have a genuine care. And so for myself, you know, I'm very keen to to work with government. I hope to share um, the messages from British Columbians that I'm receiving. So open invitation if you want to share um, your personal story and want to write my constituency office, please do. And I will share those stories with the minister because I think that, you know, we do need to work together. There are times when we can be partisan, of course, and people see it, but there are times when it moves beyond the politicking. And when it comes to saving lives, um, this is what we have to do. We have to work together. And so I really do hope that um, I can, you know, win over the premier, win over the minister, and that we can truly work together to do something good. So interesting. Well, I, I look forward to talking more about it. Thank you for sharing that with us this morning. Simi, thank you. And I wanted to thank you. I don't want to go over your time, but, you know, it was as a result of of being on your show the first time, actually, that the family of Todd, Mara, Lorraine and Chuck um, invited me to their home. And it's been very appealing and an an amazing opportunity for me to to make break new ground in, in recovering from my PTSD. And, you know, I'm really grateful that you had me on the show and I'm grateful to Lorraine and Chuck and their family for inviting me to their home and helping me learn more about Todd. Oh, well tell them thank you for us. And it was our honor to have you on and for you to share your story with us. So I do look forward. I really want to move this forward and help you do that. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sydney. Have a great day. You too. That's Eleanor Sturkel, the BC Liberal MLA, and of course the mental health addiction recovery critic talking along her private members bill. And yeah, we will follow this one for sure. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to talk about the workplace. There is one very, very powerful reason to diversify the workplace and work towards gender equality. It's good for the bottom line. How, you ask? Well, we're going to find out right now. Teresa Freeborn is with us, author of Suits and Skirts Game On, The Battle for Corporate Power. Teresa, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. A great title, by the way, Suits and Skirts Game On. <laughs> what do you want people to take from that? Well, it's actually designed to really be that attention grabber because I think we may have reached some complacency in the progress that we've made as women, assuming very advanced leadership roles um, in the corporate world. What do you mean? You think we've reached like a plateau? Well, I think that we're just not paying attention anymore like we, we did at some point in time. And I, I think it, it really comes down to me being quite outraged by the pace of progress that, that to me seems very, very slow. And, and I just ask your, your listeners to simply do the math, you know, take a look at the progress in terms of the numbers of women in um, key decision-making roles 
throughout the world, whether it's government or corporations or healthcare or education, it really doesn't matter. Music, I yeah. mean, it, it just it's 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 pathetic actually and quite shameful. So I really do want to draw some attention to the fact that we can't be complacent. That um, it basically change will happen as a, a direct result of people demanding the change, and this is designed really to get that sort of audience fired up for that. Now, you know of what you speak because you've climbed that corporate ladder. You've been the president, the CEO of a couple of different really big credit unions. Uh, What was it like for you? Well, for me, um, I must admit, you know, when you've got your head down and you're simply doing your job day to day, you don't really think about that much, right? But at, at the same time as leading those institutions, I had a chance to really take on a special role, and that is to help women advance in their leadership roles and was involved in in many, many um, institutions to do that. But what I did find is that all of those fossilized beliefs, those myths, those roadblocks exist, and they existed all through my career. And interestingly enough, as I I mentor young women today, they still exist today. So it's almost like we just put them into our norm. And I'm calling that out and suggesting that this really does have to change. The behavior has to change. And that men actually have a big, big role in doing that. Men have the power. They're in those positions of power and they can make the change. But they have to just keep it top of mind. I agree with you completely because I've been hearing this actually firsthand from my daughter who is in that kind of world right now and running up against these things. In my mind, I thought, I thought we were past this. Apparently we are not. So you talk about, you know, men being the key to change here. What is the most convincing argument, though, to make them the agents of change? Well, I, I think um, it was sort of introduced to her as you kicked it off, and that is, is that, you know, the more gender parity you have at a board table, at a C-suite, the more likely you will have a, a more successful business, you will have business growth, you will have profits. And if I can get anyone's attention on that, maybe I can get uh, the men that do hold those power um, positions right now to, to think about that and what it means if your company is more successful and more profitable than guess what? Compensation packages sort of fall in line with that. So it's kind of a pay attention to this. It's well researched. (laughs) There isn't an article out there that doesn't talk about it and prove it. So I'm asking people to reread that information and just see how important it is to have that gender parity at the board table and at the C-suite. Right. That's pretty convincing. It's it's more money for you. You may not want to do it, but it's more money for you if you do it. Exactly. So how do you make it happen though? It's obvious it's got to be a process. Yes, it, it, there is a process. And I guess if it was that simple, it'd all be done by now, right? But it's not. So I actually think that um, for men, what I really want to do here is if they look at this book and they view it as maybe something that agitates them a little bit, it's about disruptive change, right? It's about a challenge to them to say, look, there's a serious problem and believing there isn't is just nonsense. So talk to the women Ask the women, they're going to tell you there's a problem. And they're also going to tell you how to fix it if you just pay attention. And I I think the first thing you have to do, though, is just own it. Own the problem here. There is a problem. Let's all acknowledge that. Embrace diversity, gender balance from the CEO's office and the boardroom and shout it from the rooftops and, and start counting. And then present those findings and show them to the women that work for you, those bright, capable folks that are just waiting to be called up. And present those and, and be transparent. And, I mean, there's just a ton of things you can, you can do immediately. 
all of that's laid out in the book. So I'm really hoping that I can I can get everyone's attention to take a look at it yeah. and see that it's actually step by step. You, you got this, you know. <laughs> Teresa, you know it's so interesting you say this because way back at the beginning of our show this morning, we were talking about psychological assessments, personality tests that more and more companies are doing. And one of the big benefits of it is that it leads to more diversity in the workplace because you're not relying on someone's personal, perhaps unconscious bias when they are hiring, right? You're, you're making like, oh, this person has the qualities I'm looking for, therefore, this is the person I should hire. Exactly, exactly. Well, again, it's, it's, you're making mention of those sort of beliefs, those myths that ex- still exist about women in the workplace, you know, that we're, we're not emotionally strong enough, you know, that we're, um, that uh, you can't possibly be pregnant and work in a senior capacity. You, you can't sort of have kids and have a career. Believe it or not, those, those fossilized beliefs and myths are still so much alive. And a lot of it is unintentional. I, I, I call that out to my male colleagues. It's not that they're deliberately doing this in most cases. They're just not aware of it. And when you have that frame of mind as you approach a workplace and you're hiring and you're training people, that gets in the way in a very big way. Do employers think that that's too costly? Like little things like job sharing or allowing someone to come back part-time for a couple of years. Like why, what's, the, what's the problem with saying yes to some of that? Uh, uh, none. <laughs> There's no problem. Quite frankly, um, that is our workplace of tomorrow is the key is flexibility. And I think the sooner we can sort of get rid of this idea that it's such an issue to balance, you know, work and life and home and children and, you know, um, your home and all of that, the sooner that we can stop talking about all of that and just start thinking about ways that we can make that a little easier on the, the women who, who hold the, the, the chief responsibility in that area all the time, in addition to climbing that corporate ladder. So, you know, I think that the, the key word is flexibility as we go forward. We have to be more flexible. We have to understand what women really need in terms of support mechanisms to help them be all they can be, because it's good for all corporations to have more women at that senior table, so help them get there. Right. So what would your advice be then to women? It's, it's a difficult conversation to bring up in the workplace. Well, it is. But as I've introduced some primary research to go with the book, as well as, of course, combing the, the Internet for all sorts of information that would help sort of, you know, solidify my opinions. And I have to admit, at the end of the day, what women um, are really looking for today in my discussions with them is first of all, they see these, these, this discrimination that still takes place, this misogyny that still exists. They see all of this in the workplace. And really what they want is they, they want to know, first of all, what do I say in response to this? How do I do that? And this book will give them that sort of coaching. It's a bit of a playbook for women, even though I directed it at men. It does give them that. But it also, um, I believe, um, gives them a voice, makes them feel a little stronger about their position here. So there's lots that women can do. I think we, we're too quick to sort of laugh it off and, you know, push it to the side and, and all of that. But, yeah, there's, it's about finding our inner strength to, to tackle this right there with the guys that hold the power. I think we can do it together. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. 
Um, and uh, we'll talk soon. We will. That's Teresa Freeborn, author of Suits and Skirts, Game On, The Battle for Corporate Power. That's the book she has written. She actually stepped down uh, in early 2022 to write this book that you know talks about her career and the things that she's... She was the head of several quite large financial organizations, CEO of um, a couple of different credit unions, both in the United States and Canada for many years. This is Mornings with Simi. 